This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the federal government's media bailout goes from bad to worse. A global news investigation into how the RCMP deals with disabled members of the force. A controversial case in Ontario where a bartender has been charged in connection with a fatal drunk driving crash. Plus, international best-selling author Guy Gabriel Kay on his latest book, A Brightness Long Ago. Well, an obvious disclaimer here, folks. I mean, I work in journalism, but I'm also a consumer of journalism. I understand the importance of journalism. However, I'm very concerned about the idea of the government helping journalism or coming to the rescue of journalism. Uh, The news released today from the federal government, the first sentence is logical and straightforward enough. The government of Canada understands that for democracy to function properly, it needs to have solid, independent news media. Fair enough. And if the news release were just a one-sentence declaration of that fact, then, then that would be great. Unfortunately, it's not. Now, this is the latest twist in this ongoing saga of a rather ill-conceived media bailout. Or maybe to put it more specifically, a newspaper bailout, because that really is what it's shaping up to be. The federal government has set aside a considerable amount of money, which is intended to save news media. But I think in a lot of ways is doing journalism a tremendous disservice. Now, step one, I guess, in rolling out this bailout is to come up with this so-called independent panel that's going to advise the government on how to proceed, that's going to help the government decide what is a legitimate news organization. And in order to do so, the government is called upon what is supposed to be an independent panel, but is an association of industry groups, lobbyists, and unions. So what good can possibly come of this entire exercise? Joining us for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program, author and journalist, former editor of the Ottawa Citizen, Andrew Potter, joining us. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, So (laughs) I I don't know that that you were necessarily expecting much from this process, but when you look at how the government's going to proceed in this panel they've put together that's been announced today, what, what was your reaction? Uh, I, well, my reaction was uh, basically, oh, it's worse than I thought it was going to be, um, <laughs> which is not always a good position to be in. And, I, you know, I, I should be transparent in that I thought the whole thing was a bad idea from the start. So I wasn't going to be well disposed to whatever they came up with in the end. Right. But uh, I actually thought that they would, uh, given the, the pushback they got on, you know, the initial announcement of the bailout and so on, I thought that there would be actually like, uh, a very um, um, they don't bend over backwards to make sure that it's actually independent. I thought I, I thought they might uh, you know end up appointing like a former governor general like David Johnson or like a Supreme Court justice to head it up. 
uh, I never imagined in a million years they would literally hand it over to uh, a bunch of lobbyists and and unions to uh, you know say you decide who get, who amongst you gets the money right like it's crazy to me I, I, I'm absolutely like gobsmacked. Yeah, you, you wrote on Twitter, you said, if your sole ambition was to completely discredit the government's bailout, this is how you would proceed. But the government's yeah. not doing itself any favors here. No, and and so, uh, I, I mean, you can just start with, like, the, the, the rank composition of the panel. Uh, you know, even from, like, this is a government that, that you know, very uh, proudly has, has gone out of its way over its entire mandate to, you know, from, from because it's 2015 onward to say, you know, uh, you know, equal representation in cabinet and uh, making sure that, uh, you know, indigenous groups are given their due and so on. And here's a strange makeup of, uh, of, of two unions out of eight, four francophone groups out of, out of, out of eight. Uh, there's no representation from, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, of anyone representing indigenous uh, media, nobody from digital media, nobody from academia. Like, it's a very strange, uh, strange panel. Like, they really have simply caved to the lobbyists who asked them for this bailout in the first place. I, I, and, and so so the question is, why did they do this? Do they think yeah. this is the right thing to do, or do they not care? And I don't know the answer to that. Well, let's take a step back. As you said, I mean, you, you weren't too crazy about this idea in the first place uh, before today. I mean, you would obviously share the sentiment that, that journalism matters, and obviously the, these are trying times for, for journalism, but the idea that government is the solution here, where, where do you find fault with that premise? Well, I mean, here's the, 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 my, my original um, view going back a couple of years to the Shattered Mirror Report that the Public Policy Forum did, you know, that sort of first raised this possibility was they should just stay out of it. And partly it was for principal grounds. I just think an independent media is one that, you know, uh, is independent of government uh, in all ways, shapes and forms. But also that as a matter of practicality, and this, I say this as someone who worked in the business and loves the business, uh, the transformation that it's going through right now has to take place. It's not finished. We might only be halfway through it, right? And the more you try and bail out the existing legacy media operators to support them, the longer that process is going to take. All you're doing is taking long for the band-aid to grip off. So there's both principle and practical aspects to why this is just simply a bad, bad idea from the start. Do you think there's a legitimate concern here about an erosion of trust? Whatever financial stability we could somehow provide to the industry, if people perceive to be, uh, perceive that journalists are beholden to government, is there some lasting damage that comes from that? Yeah, 100%. And I think some, some wag put it, it might have been Andrew Coyne or someone on Twitter wrote, uh, when the bailout was first announced, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a lot of money, right? Like $580 million. It's over five years. It's actually not a lot of money. Uh, you know as well as I do, just, just the extent of the erosion of revenues in this business is, is, in, the, is in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in the last decade. And so what it is, is it's enough money. It, it's not enough money to help, but it's enough money to destroy the trust. That's exactly, which is what they've done. And that, that happened right away. The, this hashtag jumped up on Twitter immediately, right? The hashtag Justin's Journals, right? The idea that the, the media had been bought off. And so, so what the government did was just simply give everyone the impression they were buying the media without actually buying the media in any practical way. So there's, it's, it's all downside as far as I can tell for both the media and the, and, and the government. Right. Why, why do you think they're doing it? I mean, we could come up with a, a you know, sinister explanation that they are trying to buy the media. I, I, I don't happen to think that that's the reason, but I'm just really puzzled as to why they're, they're going down this path. Uh, for two reasons. I think, 
I think they were genuinely spooked by uh, the election of Donald Trump in 2016, partly for partisan reasons, right? A liberal government kind of freaked out by uh, this sort of uh, seemingly crazy person getting elected down south. But also, I do think... uh, that they were generally and legitimately spooked by the whole rise of fake news and Russian interference and all this kind of stuff. And uh, a, lo- a lot of us were, right? It kind of caught everyone a bit off guard. And I think they decided that that was not going to happen in Canada and decided to uh, put into place or put in train a series of events and reports and studies to figure out what the problem was and what to do about it. So I think it started from, you know, a not illegitimate place and probably a, a you know, a, a well-intentioned place. But I think that connection between uh, supporting the media and saving democracy um, has always been far too tight and without, without enough of a broader understanding of just what we're trying to do here. And I think supporting, you know, newspapers is not going to do that. And uh, all it's doing is making the problem worse. Right. Hey, you know, I've seen some other interesting ideas proposed. And one that, that's compelling to me is the idea of totally reconfiguring the CBC, where the CBC can go into markets that are underserved uh, and they can provide journalism in those communities. Uh, and, and on a bigger scale, the CBC can maybe stop competing directly with other media outlets and and maybe that you know frees up advertising dollars so i I suppose if the government really felt it had to do something that might be one one way to go about it i mean are are, are there other constructive ways that maybe the government could i don't know make changes or or get out of the way or, or do anything positive here yeah, I think so. And so I don't want to be one of these people saying, you know, there's absolutely nothing the government should ever do. I, I mean, I actually, as as part of tenants for being uh, an academic now, I read a book uh, recently called uh, State Aid for Newspapers, which had a chapter on literally every country in the European Union and what it's, uh, how, how it structured its, its, its media and what sort of state aid. And virtually everyone provides state, state support there. And there's lots of independent media there. One of the most independent media newspaper industries in the world is in Sweden, and they, they give a lot of money, right? So it's not impossible. Um, and so the question is how you do it. And uh, I, think, I think starting with the CBC is something uh, absolutely we should have considered. Uh, put that billion dollars on the table and say, okay, if we were starting from scratch today with a billion dollars to spend on media and the CBC didn't exist, what would it look like? What would we do? How would we structure it, right? So that's a very good question. Um, I know I know from talking to friends at the Globe and Mail, for instance, that the Globe was pushing them to, to fund uh, very specific um, technological type, uh, type uh, projects and programs and so on, you know, develops a new technology and, and new, new, new data resources and so on that would enable the existing institutions to, to, to find new markets and build new business models. They haven't done that, right? So there's all kinds of things they could have done. Um, but they basically just caved. Uh, I think caved is, is the unfortunate word here. It's a cliche, but to uh, to the unions and, and uh, the newspaper lobbyists. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Andrew, appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. It's my pleasure. Take care. Much appreciated. That is uh, Andrew Potter, former editor at the Ottawa Citizen, an author and journalist, and his thoughts on why this is a bad, bad idea. That it's entirely possible that the harm is going to outdo whatever good can come of this. But there are vast swaths of the media that aren't even eligible right out of the gate, including any company involved in broadcasting via television or radio. But of course, we've all now been smeared with this brush. And it's not good. And by the way, one of the groups that's going to be advising the government here is Unifor. Unifor Canada. A lot of people have been uh, retweeting 
uh, Unifor's tweet from November of last year uh, with a picture of the Unifor brass, including, of course, Angry Jerry. Unifor's National Executive Board started planning for the federal election today. Uh, the picture with the caption, The Resistance, Welcome to Andrew Shear's Worst Nightmare. So as if the optics weren't bad enough already, now we're going to throw Unifor into the mix. A large and powerful union devoted to defeating the conservatives in the next election. They're going to help advise the government on what constitutes a legitimate news organization. This is just such a mess from top to bottom. As Andrew says, I mean, if the government was actually looking to discredit its own initiative, this would be a good way to go about it. Maybe the silver lining is that this is all just going to crumble under its own dead weight. But it's just that it's so incredibly ill-conceived. It's hard to fathom what the point of it was in the first place. Welcome back. Our number here, 403-974-8255. So an exclusive investigation from Global News, uh, certainly resonating in Ottawa and beyond, as you heard the Prime Minister was asked about this today. You can read more at globalnews.ca. It's called For the Good of the Force, an exclusive look at the RCMP's alleged campaign to get rid of Mounties with disabilities. Right, and why would such a thing be going on? Uh, there's a lot of different people who have shared their story in this article. Let me just briefly pay, uh, play for you uh, one such account. Sue Olson, who was a basic firearms instructor, a weapons trainer, even did an, a UN peacekeeping mission. And her views on why the RCMP loses when it medically discharges its members too quickly. The experience and the, the extra training that members with our service have is incredible. And to just toss it away like we don't matter is ridiculous. It's, there's such a, a resource there that they can utilize. I don't have to be out running around at frontline policing, but I can certainly supervise and or provide uh, training, teaching. I would have loved to have been an asset to the training branch. And right. Uh, look, in certain situations, people are not going to be able to continue doing the job they once did. But in this investigation, Global News has learned of dozens of cases in which the RCMP has removed or is trying to remove members with disabilities. Joining us to talk more about this piece is Jane Gerster, Global News Features reporter. Again, more at globalnews.ca. Jane, thank you for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. So these are some pretty harrowing tales. Um, and, and how far back do these stories go? Honestly, they go back um, seven to ten years, and that's just from the original stories that, that I've been told. I mean, the big, the big kind of thrust of this piece is that some changes were made to the legislation in 2014, and that as a result of that, it's been much easier for the force to discharge people. So we've seen the numbers of people who've been forced out go up, but it's, uh, it's been an ongoing issue for the force for a while. Uh, the RCMP denies uh, that there's a campaign to dismiss members with disabilities, saying the force makes every effort to accommodate dismissal is a last resort. But it would seem these first-hand accounts, Jane, tell a different story. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's there's a lot of, of, of different stories that have come, come up from members who have had PTSD from on-the-job training um, to one case that, that I kind of, is a bit of a standout for me, which is of Patty Reed, um, who worked at the Airdrie Detachment, and she has um, severe asthma. And as a result, her doctor said, you need a clean air working environment. And the RCMP actually sent a letter saying, we don't think we can accommodate her anywhere in southern Alberta. We recommend a medical discharge. And to her, this was, you know, very surprising. I mean, she's from Calgary, born and raised. So she was basically saying, like, I've I breathed Alberta air my entire life. This doesn't make sense. And she's working now with no problem outside of the force. So hmm. it's just these, these kind of cases. What kind of recourse do these members have? And how difficult is it to, to fight back, essentially? Depends on who you ask. I mean, the, the commissioner, Brenda Lucky, has been quite clear in some of the letters I've seen that she, she trusts the processes that are available to Mounties. The, the bargaining agent for the RCMP union has yet to be certi- certified, so they don't have access to a union yet. And then, really, they can grieve their dismissal, but then that would go to the external uh, review committee. And that committee has a backlog of up to seven or ten years. And because the Mounties stripped out... Um, stays of dismissal, those seven to ten years means the person's out of work pending that decision. So really, a lot of these Mounties have said that they're left with the decision to go to the federal court, which is what several have now done. Mm-hmm. But this is this is a reason for removal, isn't it? That, that having a disability can be cause for, for dismissal. Absolutely. It's uh, the first on the list in the Commissioner's Standing Orders unemployment requirements for reasons other than a code of conduct violation it's having a disability as defined under the act and it's it's easy to see how in in a lot of cases in the rcmp that a, that a certain kind of disability would preclude somebody from being able to do their job so how should the rcmp or what's the argument here for how the rcmp needs needs to be dealing with people in these situations yeah, certainly you've definitely hit upon one of the sticking points, which is people saying, you know, if the person can't go front line, well, you know, that's too bad. We need people who can go front line. But the reality is that there's a lot of not front line policing work uh, that a lot of these people say they can fit in. So um, kind of one of the tests under the Canadian Human Rights Act is undue hardship. And what a lot of the experts I've spoken to who are not affiliated with these cases uh, have said is that that's actually a really high bar to meet. And they just don't see it as a feasible, they don't see the RCMP as having a good case for saying we've met it when they're, when they're the national police force. Well, especially in cases where, you know, this has happened in the line of duty, where people have, have been injured in the line of duty or, or suffered PTSD in the line of duty, uh, that, that, you know, there's a perception that the RCMP has an obligation to those people. So what, what about that, those kinds of cases? Don't, don't these people have some recourse to say, look, I suffered this injury on the job, that, that you owe me something for that? That's, that's been a sticking point for a while with the government kind of introducing new measures that it's says are, you know, aimed at helping people in the Mounties kind of saying, we don't feel like you're helping me. I mean, there's a there's a quote from one of the Mounties, Richie Sue, who was working out of BC and was discharged. And he said, you know, you're taught in training that they're going to look after you and you don't have to worry if something happens on the job, they're going to look after you. And it just didn't happen for him is what he says. So, you know, it's, um, I think the, the, the big thing here that keeps cropping up is that the RCMP, the institution has kind of their their line about what's happening in the programs they're offering. And then you have the Mounties that I've spoken to on the other side saying, that's, that's not the reality. We're not getting this help.
Well, significant today, the prime minister was asked about this and, and said it was unacceptable that uh, officers would be discharged as a result of a disability. So what, what might that mean? Is there any indication that uh, the government is moving to address this? I have no indication yet beyond what uh, the Prime Minister has said. I mean, I've reached out to the spokesperson for Ralph Goodell, the Minister of Public Safety, um, and the kind of constant refrain I get from them is that, um, you know, the Civilian Advisory Board will come into force soon and that will deal with it. But again, that goes back to concerns people have had since that was announced in January, which is that it is, it's in the name, it's an advisory board. It's not an oversight committee, which is what numerous public reports and commissions have recommended. And there's a lot of concern about whether that will actually have the teeth to fix some of these, these, these cultural issues. All right. Well, much more is mentioned at globalnews.ca. Jane, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you. All right. That is uh, Jane Gerson, Global News Features reporter, the author of this piece uh, that's been in the works for some time. Again, the headline for the good of the force. Uh, one of the people she spoke with, Chris Williams is his name. Jane writes, for months, Chris Williams knew the force wanted him out. Proof of this arrived in the form of an official discharge notice last October, last, less than three months after the RCMP corporal was released from hospital following complications from post-traumatic stress disorder. Here's more from uh, Chris Williams speaking with Global News. Former Mountie Chris Williams was on the road to recovering from PTSD when an email came through notifying him he had been discharged from the RCMP in February 2019. They had deemed that I was what they termed as permanently disabled, that being an 06 rating, and that uh, police work was no longer an option for me. This was done without consultation with the physicians that I had been seeing at the time, both my psychologist and my family doctor. Williams had been off duty since 2017 and had been doing a bit better after his first inpatient recovery stint in Ontario. I had to jump through many hoops in order to get into that program and I successfully completed that program and came out and had a, a fairly optimistic outlook on what my future career would hold. But then... He witnessed the worst mass shooting in modern U.S. history. I started getting people down onto the ground and uh, I covered up uh, the people that were adjacent to me, pushed them underneath the seats and got on top of them. 58 people were killed. The aftermath undid nearly all of the progress Williams had made in treating his PTSD. After contemplating suicide, Williams went back to his inpatient program. He was released in August and three months later received a formal notice of intent to discharge from the RCMP. Williams fought back for months to no avail, in part because former Commissioner Bob Paulson updated the commissioner's standing orders in 2014, adding new reasons other than a code of conduct violation that he could use to discharge a member. One of those reasons, having a disability. This regulation that um, the RCMP commissioner enacted uh, authorizes the RCMP to essentially opt out of the uh, uh, Canadian Human Rights Act that prohibits discrimination on the basis of a mental or physical disability. The act also states that an employer must accommodate the needs of employees who have disabilities, unless to do so would cause, quote, undue hardship. There's a couple of very disturbing things that the RCMP has done. One is the lack of accountability. There's no accountability with management. They refuse to answer questions with regards to this administrative discharge process. There's no transparency. 
They're using this opportunity, the door is open, to get rid of as many members as they can. The case is ongoing. In a statement, the RCMP told Global News, we cannot comment on specific or individual circumstances, and claims it is not engaging in a campaign to remove members with disabilities. I can tell you that the stress of dealing with the RCMP has almost killed me. And the sad part is that the hardest things for me to deal with and the things that have caused me as much problem in terms of stress, anxiety and mental illness is the fact that the RCMP does not support its members, that they simply use you and throw you away. It's like you're a stapler, once the stapler breaks, they'll get a new stapler. Well, it's not the first time we've heard about the principle of server liability when it comes to excessive consumption of alcohol and the tragic consequences that can result. But I don't remember hearing of a case like this. A 62-year-old Ontario woman has been charged with two counts of criminal negligence causing death and two counts of criminal negligence causing bodily harm in connection with a crash in 2017. Two Ontario, or Ottawa area teens were killed in that crash. Those two young men were killed. Two others were injured when police say their car veered off the road and plowed into a rock cut. Police later said the group had been drinking at a local establishment and that alcohol contributed to the crash. So these two young men were drinking. The driver was drunk. They were underage. They'd clearly consumed too much alcohol. So what is the liability then of the person who was working in the bar at the time? So police in this case have gone further than, than any other case that I've heard of to apply criminal liability here. Criminal negligence causing death. I mean, that's what the truck driver in the Humble Broncos bus crash, what he was charged with. These are incredibly serious charges. That's not just to say that the, you know, the bartender deserves some fault here we're talking about criminal liability here which in our system in this kind of a case is extremely rare well joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, on what this uh, might all signify very pleased to welcome to the program uh Eric goldkind he's a, a toronto-based criminal defense attorney and legal commentator all right great to have you with us here welcome to the program my pleasure great to be on with you you know, it's interesting because, I mean, Canadian law does speak to this, but these kinds of charges, it's, it's quite rare to see something like this, isn't it? Uh, this is basically a unicorn in this kind of case. It's extraordinarily rare. It's basically seeking a scapegoat for the tragic loss of lives in a terrible accident. It's extraordinarily unprecedented and unusual in Canada. And what's most striking to me underneath the minutia of the case, how even the fellow townspeople and the people surrounding these young men who lost their lives, they don't even like the charges, which is usually the opposite, where people are out for blood and looking for a scapegoat. Well, and I think it feels that way to a lot of people. I mean, it, we, we've heard of lawsuits uh, against bartenders or bars who, who overserve, but, but to have criminal liability, criminal charges, uh, I mean, what, what's, what would be the basis for something like that? Well, that's exactly right. So this is very, very common, just so people understand the difference between civil, in other words, money liability, and criminal, i.e. the possibility of going to jail. At the heart of it, and I'm hoping that prosecutors here aren't overreaching. That's my hope as a criminal defense lawyer. But at the heart of it, there has to be something in this case where this lady 
her name is Anne. She's 62 years old, I believe, Mm -hmm. that she knew that these young men were about to get into a car, that she knew that the driver was sauced, that she knew the driver was a minor, that perhaps she even egged him on something like out of Coyote Ugly, the movie on the where the bartenders are on the the bar. There has to be something here that really goes to a criminal standard, essentially to make her a party in law, for lack of a better term, to this terrible, terrible car crash, mindful that, again, going into the details of the story, if these young people were wearing their seatbelts, it's likely they would all be alive today. Well, and and what about the culpability of the person who is impaired and is behind the wheel? I mean, can, can it be shared culpability then in a situation like that? Yes, and in criminal law, and there's, I mean, every day in courts throughout this country, there are people charged with being parties to offense, which means either aiding and abetting an offense, just like the typical term from the movies. It could be doing something or omitting to doing something that rises to the level of criminality. For example, not taking away his keys if he was flashing them and saying, you know, I'm about to uh, drive my car, I'm going to go street racing. There are things that really rise to what's called particularly for criminal negligence. That's the charge here. It's not even an impaired driving charge. It's doing something that's a marked departure. It's a really objective standard where a jury will have to look at what she did. But going back to brass tacks, there is something in this story that the OPP and the prosecution has been very tight-lipped about in terms of what is the it that she Mm -hmm. did that changes this from a lawsuit and paying fines and losing your liquor license to the idea that she could go to jail. Well, yeah, I mean, as you said, criminal negligence, it's a very serious charge, and it's a pretty high bar in a case like this. Uh, but certainly for, for bars, for lounges, nightclubs, basically alcohol service, I mean, this is something they need to be aware of. They, they need to know what their obligations are, and, and certainly I think for the most part the industry is pretty responsible and in training people who, who work for it and ensuring that they understand what their obligations are, what their side of the bargain is. But as you said, this isn't a case about somebody being a bad bartender, uh, somebody who, who maybe didn't cut off somebody soon enough who was drinking too much. This goes far beyond that. Right. This is, and again, for people who don't know the criminal code, criminal negligence causing death, criminal negligence causing bodily harm is serious, serious business. I'll give you a quick example. We saw a father a few months ago who got charged and convicted for that for leaving a python to be able to sneak down into his son's room and suffocate the son and strangle it uh, with a snake acting the way a snake does. This is a really big stretch in my view, and as you introed the question, there has been no lack of information to bartenders, servers, restaurants, uh, nightclubs that you could have some serious civil liability. So maybe something good comes out of this charges for her, but again, my full bias uh, being shown, I don't like the idea. Absent knowing more, Rob, that's the key. Absent knowing more about what went on in that bar where she's now the scapegoat taking away in my heart of hearts from the horrible lack of responsibility of these young men, the driver that got behind the wheel of the car. I'm not a big fan of blaming others for what you have done to yourself. And that's why I think there's something potentially odious in this criminal prosecution. Well, you know, and as you say, I mean, this could establish some precedent given how rare this is. There's, there's a lot of reasons to be watching this closely. And, and just given the public interest, Ari, maybe the, the Crown, the OPP, maybe they need to be more forthcoming about this case. That may be, Ron. Let me go to something I feel passionately about, and I know that every defense lawyer in Canada thinks I'm completely wrong about it, and I don't care. <laughs> You're going to charge this woman 
with criminal neg, with the possibility that she goes to jail for this. What about all the people who drink and drive every single day by the thousands across this country? And if they're lucky enough to get caught where they've been lucky enough to not kill somebody, they get a $1,200 fine. Why is this woman facing more jeopardy and jail time and serious criminal repercussions than an actual driver who right now is listening to us talk about this while he's driving drunk? And if he gets pulled over, he's getting a $1,200 fine. That's a great point. We'll see how it all plays out. Much more at uh, ericgoldkind.com. Always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you. There you go, attorney, legal analyst, uh, Ari Goldkind, his thoughts on this unusual case in Ontario, something to watch closely. And especially now, you've got about 400 people in this community that have come forward to contribute to this woman's defense fund. Some of the comments on the fundraiser side, this one says, we support you and you are not responsible for what happened to those boys. Another one says, we have never met, but we feel you have been unjustly charged. Something does seem weird about this case, and the evidence would have to be pretty compelling, pretty overwhelming to say this wasn't just a bad bartender, uh, that this is somebody who contributed to this tragedy. Right. So, you know, the argument that, you know, she should have ID'd these guys, but didn't or should have cut them off sooner, but didn't. Right? That, that's irresponsible behavior on a bartender's part, but that's not criminal negligence. That, that's not causing this crash. Is it, as Eric Goldkind says, the police are looking for a scapegoat here? The actual drunk driver was killed in this crash. Is this a way of trying to find somebody to hold somebody accountable? That, that can't be a, enough of a basis to charge somebody criminally. So th- this is really unheard of, this kind of a criminal charge in this kind of a situation. So as Eric Goldkind said, I think he's right. I mean, the evidence better be pretty overwhelming. Otherwise, it just, just doesn't make sense. Well, I've been hearing that this is uh, a big deal this week. A lot of people excited for this event tomorrow night. And a lot of people excited for this new book. International best-selling author Guy Gavriel Kay is in Calgary. The event is going down tomorrow night. It's a WordFest event tomorrow night, 7 o'clock at the new Central Library. And we do have some tickets that we're going to give away. Uh, so stick around for that. He's the author of 14 books, international bestsellers. His latest is called A Brightness Long Ago. Guy Gavriel Cape, welcome to Calgary. Welcome to the program. It's nice to be back here, Rob. Uh, you're from Winnipeg originally, aren't you? I grew up in Winnipeg. That's the prairie boy stubbornness is baked in. <laughs> is that right? So it is. That's a good thing. I think people see that as a, as a good quality. Uh, so much to talk about, obviously, with the new book and, uh, and, of course, everything you've done. I am curious because I guess fantasy has, has become, I, I, I dare say, big business these days with the success of Game of Thrones. I know some of your books are being, uh, they're going to be television programs, aren't they? They're being developed. I've got a couple of projects being developed. And how do you feel about that? Are you excited about that? Am I excited about it? I've got my readers are telling me in uh, alternating tones, but they're wildly <laughs> excited and completely terrified. Well, yeah, people have strong opinions, right? People have very strong my opinions. My goodness, do people have opinions. And it's it's been interesting to see with Game of Thrones where you have uh, part of the series that was based on, on the books that were written, and then the end of the series is just kind of improvised. I... I I'm they, not had sure. outline, well, they had an outline, Rob. They had an outline from George Martin, but he's not an outliner in a full extent. No. George gave them a general sense of where he was going, 
and they ran with it. Like that would be like, you know, <laughs> you raised my, my kids, right? I mean, it's, these are your characters, your world, and to put them in someone else's hands, that, that would seem weird, I would think. It's an almost unique situation. It's one of the reasons, Rob, that I'm so happy that I tend to write single-volume books. Mm-hmm. If anyone ever picks <laughs> up the books, they're picking up a finished product, they could still do something brilliant with it or mess it up entirely, but it's yeah. done. It's finished. I would imagine once you, you've built a following and you've built a world and you've built characters that people come invested in, there's that pressure, right, that where's the next book? Where's the next book? But it's it's got to be on your terms, on your timeline. It's got to be something that, that first and foremost that you're happy with and you believe in, right? It depends on the nature of the writer, Rob. There's a pretty wide continuum of people who see themselves as, uh, I'm a creative artist. It will be on my timeline and nobody will (laughs) see it until I'm satisfied. And there will be other people who say, I'm an entertainer. Part of my job will be to deliver on time and my market might fall apart if I wait too long. And so there there are many different approaches to that dynamic you're talking about. And how do you approach it? I do one-offs. I do single volumes. Uh, I've been really lucky, Rob, and I say this in a lot of my appearances around North America. My readers have given me a gift, and the gift is that they will wait. (laughs) That they're not waiting for a single story to finish, but they'll wait for the next book and let me do the best book I can at the speed I can do it. And that is a gift for a writer today. Well, and it's it's something that maybe we, we start to lose in a, a Netflix world where you can just binge on seven seasons of a television show. Just the, the wonder of the wait, the anticipation. Right? I think you're absolutely right. I think that we've lost an element of uh, rhythm. Mm-hmm. There's a, there used to be a rhythm that on Sunday nights you watched The Sopranos. And that you were waiting till next Sunday right. to see yeah. it. And with Netflix taking over to such a great degree, the, the watching habits of, of many of us, and I'm as guilty as anyone else, mm-hmm. we don't have that rhythm. We, we want it now like popcorn. But it is, I, I think there's certainly the positive side of all of this, that in a world of Netflix and mobile phones and all of that, that people are excited to sit down and read a book, right? That, that hasn't changed. I think that's one of the most enduring pleasures for a part of our society. It's what I make my living on. It's sure. what I spend my time trying to satisfy the people who are waiting for the next book that will keep them awake till three in the morning. Yeah. But it's, it's a passion, right? It's not just, it's not just a career. I, I mean, you know, certainly there are people who write as, as a hobby, right? There's, there's a love that people have for it. You can't write as a hobby if you're doing it professionally. That's almost like tautological. That's almost by definition. (laughs) Uh, There are more and more people who are writing because the online world creates a context where you can do a blog, Mm -hmm. you can do essays, you could do reviews on Goodreads or on imdb.com. You can review a new film and you're writing for your own satisfaction and for whomever picks up on what you've got to say. But I think the passion is a two-way passion. It's both someone in my situation where I am spending my life trying to tell a story as well as I can, 
but it's also a passion when you're lucky enough to have readers who've decided that the stories you tell work for them. But for you, when when did you have the feeling? When when was it obvious to you that this is what I want to do? Was it a a a young age? About a week ago. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm being flippant. Uh, I knew very early that I wanted to write. I think I knew I always would write, Mm -hmm. but I also knew, and I'm putting scare quotes around that, that there was no possible way to make a living writing (laughs) fiction in Canada. Well, it's, yeah, it's tough. So that's when I talk about being lucky, that the likelihood of my career having unfolded the way it did with the the 30 languages and and, uh, that's, you can't bank on that. Rob, you can't plan for that. I took a law degree, expecting to practice law (laughs) and write as much as I could around the edges of that. So approaching it then, is it from your perspective that that this is what I want to write about? These are the kinds of stories that I want to tell. I may as well tell my own stories. Or was it, I think this is what people want? No, the former for sure. Uh, Having said that, I know a great many people, uh, friends of mine, colleagues, who do try to, if you will, dope the market. They try to figure out where the market is going, what the market wants, or if they've had a success with a particular kind of mystery thriller, Mm -hmm. they will write that book over and over again because there will be readers who will say essentially... Do to me again what you did to me before. <laughs> well, an author like Stephen King, for example. Yeah. And, and obviously he's done different kinds of books, but his bread and butter is a, a certain kind of book, and, and there's still a huge demand for that, right? Oh, there's an enormous demand. King is a phenomenon yeah. now as much as he was 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and you continue to be a phenomenon, I would dare argue. Is this, this is book 15 then? Right? 14, 14. 14. 15 if you count a book of poetry, but nobody counts well, poetry we can anymore. count that, sure. Uh, and, and you still get the same joy from it then as you did on book one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the concept of, of, I guess it's historical fantasy, you describe it as, because this is a book that draws inspiration from uh, the Italian Renaissance. That's right. But obviously it's, it's set in a whole different world, a whole different universe. So how do you how do you find that bridge between telling a historical story and creating a, a whole new a whole new world? Oh Rob, how much time do you have this afternoon? <laughs> well we got some time. <laughs> um, the anchor for me, as you suggested, is in history. The elements of the fantastic, what one reviewer called years ago, and I've used the phrase ever since my quarter turn to the fantastic. <laughs> yeah. uh, that is the added dimension that I bring after an extended period of time researching and thinking about different times and places in history. So if I differ from a number of other writers, it's that I'm not squarely in the fantasy field and Mm -hmm. I'm not squarely in historical fiction and I'm not squarely in literary fiction, but I'm trying to deliver elements of all three. Yeah, because it seems counterintuitive that you're you're creating your own world, but you're doing historical research. That's right. But it it, it weaves together, which is really remarkable. the The Italian Renaissance is is obviously an interesting period in in human history. What what about it to you made for a, a fitting backdrop here? In some ways, I've been answering that by saying, "How not?" Yeah, <laughs> it's such an extraordinary. As you said, it's such an extraordinarily fertile period. One of the things that really interested me about 
that time and place, and which I've tried to bring out in A Brightness Long Ago, is that we think of the Renaissance as this glittery, glamorous, the great artists, Leonardo, Michelangelo, the, the Medici. We think of mm -hmm. these flashy figures of power and glory, but it was also absolutely in tandem with that, a period of extreme violence, warfare, yeah. <laughs> uh, plague, uh, famine, uh, death. Uh, the two halves of that are what I like to hold in balance when I try to let modern readers think about periods yeah. of history. Yeah, the beauty and, and the misery, it's quite That's a contrast, right? Exactly, and yeah. they're embedded, they're both embedded there. Yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating. So once you complete a book like this, and I imagine it's quite a process writing it, do you start thinking about the next one? Do you just, is it like a bottle of wine? You just open it, let it breathe, and we'll think about that another day? Bite your tongue for even thinking about the next one yet, Rob. <laughs> I have friends, Rob, who can get five ideas between waking up and their first cup of coffee. Yeah. I seem to get one really strong idea about every three years. I don't have it yet. I never do. I'm less nervous than I used to be because I sure. never have the next idea. Right now, I'm running around North America, then I'll be doing <laughs> yeah. a lot of international media, talking about the most recently finished book. Sometime this summer, my super ego will kick in and start jabbing <laughs> me with a pitchfork. But you feel like when you're not writing, when you're not immersed in that, do you feel like, you know, like something's missing from your life? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, I don't think there's any question that difficult as writing is, and you will rarely get a writer in your studio who doesn't talk about how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. Difficult as it is for most of us, it's what comes most naturally after a period of time. In some ways, I'm most alive when I'm wrestling with and thinking about the character that I want you as a yeah. reader to be thinking about. Uh, it was interesting. Once I interviewed uh, an author, Joe Nesbo. He's a Norwegian uh, crime writer. And what, what was interesting to me about what he said was his main character that it's almost where you want to, um, you, you love this character, but you want to punish this character. You want to put this character through just the, the most horrible things. I, I would think as a writer, you start to have a, an attachment to your characters. And maybe as the readers might, they want good things to happen to those characters. But you also want, <laughs> you want to tell a story. Story means not so nice things happening. I think the attachment is, is built into the process for me. It, I, the way I think about it is if I want a reader crying over what happens to a character they encounter in my book, that is more likely to happen mm -hmm. if I am emotionally and intellectually engaged with them. The, I've joked for years, Rob, that they're going to put on my tombstone, he made people cry. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> but the attachment then is really with the reader is what it's all about. It's that relationship. And it's a dialogue. I, I make this point all the time that a book or a painting or a song isn't a monologue. It's not just coming from the artist and going out there. It is being responded to by someone picking up the book. And your response and someone else's response are not identical. One yeah. person's action-packed scene 
is in others put them to sleep. That's what's so fascinating about the writer-reader interaction is that it is both ways. Mm-hmm. The reader brings their personality, their mood, that week, that month, that day to the reading experience. And yeah. we've all had that experience where you've read something and went meh, and you <laughs> pick it up again a couple of years later or five years later and you say, how did I miss this? Yeah. Because it's you, it's a change in you and your state of mind that's a part of the writer-reader dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you, too, I mean, you've had, obviously, all the accolades, and I see all the, the things people are saying about this book, which must be amazing. You've had the bestsellers, you've won the awards. Uh, it was five years ago you received, you were inducted into the Order of Canada. What, what did that mean to you? I don't think there's any way to describe it as other than overwhelming. Yeah. It was a deeply deeply rewarding moment. I remember when we had the investiture, my my wife and sons and my mother were there in Ottawa, you're allowed to bring family. And there's a sense of uh, reward and culmination that comes when your own country gives you its highest civilian honor. That was a pretty so, yeah. great moment. Well, congratulations on all the success. Much deserved. The latest book is called A Brightness Long Ago. Guy Gabriel, okay, thank you so much for coming in here today. Not at all. Thank you, Rob. Uh, that is uh, international best-selling author Guy Gabriel, K. A Brightness Long Ago. You can see him tomorrow night at, uh, it's a WordFest event, uh, the new Central Library, 7 p.m. tomorrow evening. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.